Hi everyone, my name is Maria Mizadi. Everyone calls me Donia. I'm a senior software engineer at Personal Capital. And I'm Ritesh Shetty. I'm a principal engineer with Personal Capital. Today we will talk about what lessons we learned over the last year with Amazon EKS. In today's session, I will give you a quick intro about the company and we will talk about our challenges. Ritesh will give you the details of why we chose EKS and what's the architecture, what lessons we learned. So let's take a step back and see who's personal capital. The company first founded in 2009 and our team focused on development of the product for two years. And we went public in 2011, a year after we became registered with SE as an investment advisors. And the first founder of company is Bill Harris. You may know him as the previous CEO of um, Intuit or PayPal. Um, our mission is to have better financial life through technology and people. So that's what makes us unique. We believe in technology, we use technology, plus uh, guidance from real advisors. The advisors we have from day first, day zero, started to act as fiduciaries, which means we are legally obligated to act to our clients' best interest. Later on, I will give you a quick overview of our tools, but technology-wise, we are a cloud-native company. We are, the application entirely is on Amazon Web Services. We are using a lot of their web services, like EC2 for computing, S3 for storage, Kinesis Stream, SQS, SNS, and many more, which helps us to um, have more productivity, have better scaling, and um, as well as we are keeping our costs low. Um, as many of you, our best focus is to have better user experience and satisfactions, right? Our product is sophisticated. Our clients have complex financial life. After you've been working for a number of years, you probably have many accounts spread across um, different institutions. You may have married, you wanna manage your money with your spouse. You may have kids you want, whether or not you wanna save for their education and many more. All these things get complex quickly. And uh, not any investing algorithm alone can solve it for you. Also, we have personalized digital advice. When user logs into our dashboard, based on their real specific data, we'll give them the best digital advices. Uh, we offer a higher standard. We are not broker. We don't earn commission through selling or buying product. We don't have any hidden agenda. And in general, we have a holistic approach. We do more than money management. So we can help our clients through all their financial topics. Like for example, if you wanna form an estate plan, if you wanna buy or sell a house, a car, you wanna do your tax optimization, for all of this, you can get best actionable advice from our clients. A quick overview of our um, uh, tools on our free dashboard. So behind the scene, we are um, using all the Amazon Web Services, but the tools are, um, when you link all your accounts and you log in, you can see all your accounts in one place. So it's a snapshot of your financial life at any time at your household level. You can see your network, you can monitor your cash flow, and one of our popular tools is Retirement Planner. So you can see if you're on track by your park, um, when you wanna retire by your targeted day. You can see what would be your monthly income. 
and also you can see your, all your assets in one, um, in one, one place, uh, regardless of what, where your holding is. Let me share some of our numbers with you. Today, we have more than 2.3 million users using our free dashboard, and for them, we are managing more than 800 billion assets. We're not managing, sorry, we're tracking more than 800 billion um, assets. We have 21,000 clients. They're using our dashboard, and um, average of our clients are high net worth individuals, and their portfolio has close to half a million dollars. And for them, we are proud to manage 11 billion of their assets. Now that I'm presenting is 11 billion, two months ago we celebrated an, our um, 10 AUM, 10 billion of AUM. And also, we are proud to maintain the 96% of AUM retention rate. Size of our company is about 400 employees, but our engineering team is still is small. We have around 50 to 60 engineers. Um, let's see some of our scale numbers to see how big of a scale is personal capital. Size of our biggest database, a table in database, is 20 billion rows. We handle 1.5 million transactions per minute. Last quarter, we served about a billion messages to our users. We have close to 10K stress messages per minute. We have a million cash calls per minute. Okay, before I jump to our challenges, I would like to share a little of our journey with you. So when we started the company, we had the idea. We wanted to get our product out as soon as possible. So we started a single um, repo, a Maven module, with a few people. And um, over time, as we grow, we had 10 developers. That, uh, that repo grew to um, um, 10 or 16 different modules. And our architecture was service-oriented. So we kept on adding features to our service, and it became heavier and heavier. And now the problem we have is dealing with monolith apps. Our release cycle is weekly. So we have these all monolith apps tightly coupled on related features together. And when we have release, we are building all together, we're testing them all and deploying all. So if something fails, it will impact all other features. And as you can guess, if you miss a release, you need to wait another week. So what we need is to split these services to, their, to little um, like units for each one of the services, and each one can handle its own CI-CD. That's what we are looking for. Um, another challenge we are trying to solve is the dev and prod parity. So, problem comes when development team deliver a properly working code to operation for placement into production, and that doesn't work, right? The famous sentence, it's working on my machine. I don't know why it's not working in any other environment. So, what we want is to have the whole application similar across all environments. Also, we want engineers to have more ops power and operations more engineering power, right? In traditional model, it's not like that. So the configuration of the system, infrastructure, environment is on um, operation team. But what we are looking for is to decouple these two, shift a little of the responsibilities, 
and let developers own the infrastructure. Who better than developer knows what's the configuration for the system around CPU, memory, environment, type, and number of instances, right? So that's what's, uh, what we are looking for, and Retesh will tell us how we solve that. Another challenge is cost optimization, right? So you may have different workload during the time of the day, right? During the day, you're more dealing with um, OLTP, online requests. At night, you have more bad jobs or weekends or holidays. So what we need is on-demand auto-scaling. Or if you are not using any, um, any of your pods, you just want to terminate them, right? You don't want to pay for those which you are not using or if it's holiday. Um, that's something else we will see how we solve that. Okay, before I hand it over to Retesh to tell us exactly what's the architecture and why we chose EKS, I would like to share a story with you. So, last year, we got the opportunity to offer personal capital high saving account. And for that project, we should have like 10, um, sorry, six months of development. But using EKS and new architecture, we could just deliver that in 12 weeks in production, GA, just by having three or four resources. That was a big success. And now I hand it, to over, I hand it over to Retesh to tell us how we did that. Thanks, Tonya. So let's move on to uh, the lessons learned. And even before I go into the lessons learned, uh, let me talk about the technologies that we chose and why we chose them. So I'll, I'll go through some of the topics that I'm going to talk about today, um, like what was the cost of the first service. The first service is always costly, and why it took us a while to get there. Um, um, you know, how do we do upgrades on our cluster? Um, how do we manage our worker nodes? Um, we, you know, right sizing and uh, pod density, uh, something around that. Um, we use a service mesh, so I'll talk a little bit around that and the problems that we face around the service mesh. Um, and then uh, I'll also talk about some problem that we face around auto-scaling, um, and then security, uh, which is like the key. Uh, we, we had to iron out a lot of security detail before we roll it out into production. Um, and then uh, lastly, observability on what tools we use and how they helped us solve this problem. So as Donia said, um, this is where we started. We had separate development team and we had separate ops team. Uh, dev team and ops team is not DevOps. We all know about it. Uh, and we wanted to bridge this gap uh, by making a single team, which, which is called DevOps. So um, here, this is how we started, um, where we, we envisioned the developer writing his or her own application. And then once they, they write their application, they know how to deploy it. They know how to do the CI, CD. Uh, they know how to you know, get the metrics out of it, how alerting should happen. If something goes wrong on production, how to handle it, everything is about ownership. And it's not fair that I develop a service and someone else has to wake up in the middle of the night. So we wanted to move toward this model. So we, we picked up a few guinea pigs. And one of the guinea pigs that, we, that Donia talked about was 
the Heil Savings Account. It was a very high visibility project, and we took the risk. We had pretty good confidence on Kubernetes, so we went ahead with this plan. So there was definitely a shift in the way we did our business. Um, people started owning everything to end till production. We came down, for these guinea pigs, we came down from a week long of uh, release to a daily release. Sometimes we used to do two or three times a release a day, and it was pretty smooth. We did not face major issues there. Um, and it was not just Kubernetes. We also had to change a lot of things around our application, uh, essentially moving it into a microservice and things like that. Kubernetes was definitely a catalyst while doing this. And of course, uh, I didn't talk about, um, there are still some areas where developers do not uh, participate, like IAM, RBAC, um, or uh, something to do with cluster upgrades. Um, so those are still fine. Uh, the developers do not have to worry about those. So we have um, uh, a dedicated operations team which can do all of that. Let's move on to why we chose EKS. But even before we move on to why EKS, let's talk about why Kubernetes. So at this point, I think it's a no-brainer uh, uh, why we chose Kubernetes. Uh, can I have a quick show of hands of how many people uh, use Kubernetes on production? OK, that's, that's really great. So um, the, I don't have to go into the details of Kubernetes then, but uh, I think all of this is really good. Um, all, it's battle-tested. It scales well, you know, all the bin packing and, you know, self-healing or whatever you want to talk about. From my perspective, the biggest advantage I got was how do we scale our teams? Uh, we are in a hyper-growth phase right now. Um, as Donia said, like maybe a couple of months back, um, we were at 10 billion AUM, and now we are already at 11. So you can imagine the, the number of users starting to join our, you know, as, a, uh, as our user. And um, it's becoming more and more uh, you know, difficult, and uh, we have to scale really fast, and uh, we have to roll out features really fast. So uh, it really helps when your um, when your team can uh, scale really well. Um, so uh, this is a um, a graph which shows it's a cloud native uh, foundation uh, stats, which says how does Kubernetes fare compared to other technologies that are there in the market. Um, I, I had a different graph uh, which, which showed a Google trend on how Kubernetes is, is trending better than others, but uh, uh, there was a better, uh, uh, better picture here, so looks good. Let's talk about why EKS. So um, if, if we would have gone with uh, installing Kubernetes and managing Kubernetes by ourselves, then we have to deal with a lot of things which we don't really have to deal with. I might as well focus on my application and build features on my financial side rather than uh, trying to uh, manage my, my cluster or you know, upgrade my cluster or th things like that. So um, of course, it's a managed uh, service from AWS, as all of you know. Um, and then upgrading of some of the, uh, some of the um, cluster components, even though it doesn't upgrade by itself, but I'll, I'll talk about how we do it. Uh, but 
it's there. Um, if some of you have already run Kubernetes by yourself, you might know that um, if you do not use EKS, then you have to uh, have your own CNI. You could use Calico, you could, you could use Flannel, and it's an overlay network, um, and uh, if you don't know what you're doing, it just gets complex very soon. And we do not, did not want to get into that, um, and that's another reason why we chose EKS, is just because um, it, the whole complexity just goes away or at least reduced to a great extent. Um, lastly um, is Kubernetes is developed by a huge community, and EKS is a AWS service. They were both married just last year. So, um, of course, there are some areas where things have to work, like how, how does RBAC and IAM work together, or how does networking work together, how does, uh, uh, so all of these definitely um, are taken care by AWS. I wouldn't say it's completely solved, but uh, it, it's, it's solved to a certain extent. So that's, uh, that's another reason why we went with EKS. So before I go into the problem areas, it's, it's important to understand the EKS um, architecture. So at a high level, um, like any other Kubernetes environment, you have the, the control plane and you have the data plane. And it's a 50-50% ownership model where the master nodes is all uh, managed by uh, AWS and the worker nodes um, you, you have to manage by yourself. It is supported to a certain extent by AWS, but you still have to manage them. Um, any communication uh, that goes from the worker node to the managed nodes has to go through the API server endpoint. Any communication that goes from the master node to the worker node has to go through an ENI. So, um, that is, uh, so if, since it's a multi-account uh, um, architecture, uh, there is a uh, ENI there where uh, it takes care of this uh, transition. So when we started, we had this uh, uh, transition architecture. Uh, we didn't want to boil the ocean. Uh, we went with uh, not touching our public-facing uh, architecture at all. So we are on right scale right now. When we started, right scale was the best solution that we had. Uh, but we wanted to move towards a container-based, EKS-based, Kubernetes-based solution. And so we, we put the, the Kubernetes only on our private network, which means that nobody on the internet can access it. There was no public endpoint on any of the, uh, any of the hosts. Um, and uh, even the ELBs that we spun off was all internal ELB. So, um, uh, and then we use Istio for, as our service mesh. Um, so the reason why uh, we use Istio was uh, when we started, um, we wanted, we had a bunch of requirements like, you know, how, how is the ingress gonna work like? Uh, do we have a, a ingress controller? Do we have something where we can uh, do A-B testing? Can we do canary um, testing? Can we do some, uh, some circuit uh, breaker uh, which is inbuilt? And, um, uh, at that time, AWS AppMesh was not born. Um, so we wanted to go with something which gave you Envoy. And um, Istio uh, was the solution at that point of time. 
and I, I believe it's still uh, a good solution even today. Um, so the architecture, the way it works is you have an uh, internal gateway uh, on ISTO, um, which accepts all the traffic. It's, it's, it's like a load balancer, which, which is going to accept all your requests from the ELB. Um, and then uh, the Envoy proxy then uh, decides where the traffic should be routed after that. This is our deployment architecture. Uh, when we started, uh, we made a conscious decision not to have one big cluster, even though we were told by many people that Kubernetes is great, it can handle so many nodes, it, just one cluster is enough. But we went with a architecture where we have separate clusters per environment. And the reason being is, number one, was we wanted to, we wanted to know if this is repeatable. If we do something on one, and then we move on to the next one. Is, is it repeatable? Do we see similar problems on every environment? Uh, and I'm glad that we went with this, because uh, when we actually started uh, putting these into dev, QA, and production environment, every environment had a different problem. And uh, eventually, we were able to iron out a lot of these problems. Also, um, isolation level, uh, isolation-wise, we could have just built some network-level um, isolation, but uh, it, it was just cheap to uh, spin off separate clusters and manage them. So let's talk about the cost of the first service. Um, as you all might agree that uh, cost of first service on production is pretty, uh, it is pretty high. Um, so if you have done the getting started with EKS, which is published on the uh, AWS uh, website, uh, it probably takes an hour to get, uh, get the Hello World working, right? Of course, you cannot put that on production because uh, it's just a getting started guide and gives you a good idea about how EKS works, but it has its own problems. Uh, you know, from a security perspective and scaling perspective, you have to build a lot of things. So I'll talk about uh, why it took us a couple of months uh, and maybe a little bit more to uh, get the first service on production. Uh, and then the second service that we got on EKS was just a couple of days. So since the whole ecosystem was set up, it was pretty easy to get the second service and the third and the fourth. Um, so right now we have less than 10 services on, uh, on EKS. Uh, and the goal is by mid of next year, we'll move the entire production into EKS. But I, we thought that it is always a good idea to uh, present this. Um, Okay, so let's talk about why the cost of first service was so high. Um, of course, the network design, um, with, uh, with all the worker nodes and all the containers and all the daemon sets that comes as part of Kubernetes, network uh, design is pretty crucial. Um, AWS recommends that you have a separate, uh, separate VPC for uh, EKS. Um, uh, we did not go with that recommendation just to test the waters, we went with our existing VPC, and then we'll slowly start evolving our VPC and build a separate VPC later on. But to test the waters, we didn't have to do that. We went with the current VPC. But what we did was we created separate uh, subnets, uh, private subnets, separate CIDR ranges, which can help us do that. Uh, we look into what security considerations uh, later on, um, but essentially it, it deals with everything. Any endpoints that you expose, uh, any images that you are going to use um, has to be thoroughly scanned. 
you should not repent after going on to production. It has to be before you even put it on to production. Uh, automation of clusters, super critical. Um, anything, um, anything that goes to, um, uh, anything that goes to um, uh, production has to be automated. That includes installation of uh, specific softwares like Helm, um, STO, or um, Splunk um, daemons, or Datadog daemons. Everything has to be automated uh, right from day zero. Um, centralized logging. Um, of course, right from day zero, we need it because developers are going to start asking from the, the first day itself, how do, we, how do I check my logs? And you could obviously tell them, use kubectl log, uh, but uh, once the pod is down, uh, you can go back to history to a certain extent. But once the, you know, the nodes, etc., start rolling out, it starts becoming a bit difficult. So centralized logging becomes super critical. Observability, we'll talk about uh, that in the later sections, but uh, you know, I cannot just roll out a service on production without knowing how it's doing. Um, especially when we have, uh, we are not, we didn't start the company like just one year back. We started it quite some time back. So we have two million plus customers. So if anything goes bad, we have to know first before the customers know what's going wrong. Vulnerability scanning, I already talked about. We'll go into the details later. Um, uh, and then lastly, um, uh, it, also the least privileges on uh, IAM as well as the RBAC. Um, we do not put a star on everything. We just give enough privilege for IAM as well as RBAC. Uh, that includes the, the instance profile on the worker nodes. That includes every developer who accesses Kubernetes. That includes every every operation person who deals with Kubernetes. Let's talk about the upgrade process. So when we started, uh, when we first installed on EKS, we thought um, uh, the cluster is managed by AWS, and then the worker node is managed by me. Just two upgrades, pretty simple, right? Um, it turns out that um, there are a lot of things that um, even though AWS has a specific prescription on how to do things, but you still have to do them. For example, the CNI plugin that comes with, the, uh, uh, with EKS, uh, it doesn't upgrade itself. You have to go and upgrade that daemon set. Um, uh, let's say you, are, you created a cluster with 1.4 and now it is at 1.5, then you have to go and upgrade that specifically. Um, second thing is uh, CoreDNS. Um, again, it doesn't upgrade itself. Uh, upgrading the cluster doesn't upgrade itself, so you have to go and upgrade it. Q-proxy, similarly, you have to upgrade yourself. Um, and then if you have installed a cluster autoscaler, and most of you who are running uh, cluster autoscaler, uh, sorry, if you're running a Kubernetes cluster, you, you definitely would have installed a cluster autoscaler. It's a no-brainer. So you have to install and you have to upgrade that as well. So what we did was we, we, we believe that none of the changes that go into production should be manual and everything should be automated. So this is an example of a configuration that we have. Uh, we wrote a very simple Ansible uh, playbook um, and the input to that playbook is just a version of the software and it's completely idempotent. And whenever you run this playbook, it just magically upgrades the whole cluster.
Let's talk about the problems that we faced with um, rolling upgrade of worker nodes. Um, and I want to call out a clear distinction between rolling upgrade versus like something like a blue-green. Uh, what we do is we do not create a separate cluster. We upgrade, we do an in-place upgrade of our uh, EKS worker node uh, as well as the cluster, uh, which is running on production. So, uh, and the system supports it. You just have to know how to do it and the problems around it. So the first problem that we saw was that, and we right now use all reserved instances. We haven't moved to spot instances yet. The first problem that we saw was, um, as I talked earlier, um, AWS and Kubernetes are, have been developed by two separate teams. One is a community, one is a company, AWS. And when you do a rolling upgrade of your AMIs on the worker node, Kubernetes is not aware that underneath the nodes are getting upgraded. So the nodes do not get drained. So if you have, if you're, I, I saw quite a few hands go up, and which means you are already aware what node draining is. And due to this, what was happening was we started seeing certain outages. And good thing is we had so many environments and we caught it early. And in the dev QA stages itself, we started seeing these outages. And so to solve this problem, there are four approaches uh, that you could take. The first one is, is a Lambda hook. So if you're using a CloudFormation template to do your upgrades or to create your cluster, you could write a hook which goes to Lambda and it, there's already a code available in the community. You just have to uh, enable that function, Lambda function, and then that Lambda function then goes ahead and drains your nodes. So that, that solves the problem. The second way of solving it is you do not do a rolling upgrade, but you, what, what you do is, let's say you have one stack, uh, one uh, uh, node group coming out of a stack. Let's say it's V1. You do not do a rolling upgrade. You bring up a second stack of your worker nodes called V2. And then you drain V1 so that all of your containers then move on to this new stack. And then eventually you delete V1. So that's another way in which you can solve this problem. Third way, this, this is pretty new, which got released like probably two or three weeks back, and it's pretty cool. Um, AWS now has something called as managed worker nodes, which means that the life cycle of your uh, worker nodes will, will be taken care uh, by AWS, but it has it is very new, it has some restrictions right now. For example, you cannot have your own user data and things like that. Uh, so if you have some, something you, you have already put in into your worker node that cannot be done, it, it doesn't support custom AMIs. Um, so that's, that's gonna come very soon, but it's not there yet. That, so if you, if you do not want all of these features, then manage worker nodes is a good way to go about it. And Monday, uh, as all of you know, in the keynote, Fargate was announced. Uh, Fargate was already there, but uh, EKS behind Fargate uh, was announced. The whole concept of worker node from a uh, consumer perspective just goes away. Uh, you just have to worry about your containers, things like that. So uh, that just 
solves the problem to a great extent, according to me. Um, so we haven't tried it out. It was just announced. Uh, I'm going to go back and try it out. OK, let's talk about uh, right sizing and pot density. Um, uh, b even before I go there, um, just so that the, we are talking in, this, in the same terms. So let's talk about what an ENI is. Um, it's, it's nothing but a primary private IPv4 address um, from the range of your VPC. And um, one or more secondary uh, IPv4 addresses, um, you know, you, you can have one or more um, um, secondary IPv4 addresses uh, from the range of your VPC. And uh, the bigger the instance, the more number of secondary IPs you get out of it. So to give you a, a good picture of how it looks like, so I just uh, got this from the AWS website. And if you have a, let's say, a C3 large versus a C3 eight times large, you know the number of um, uh, IPv4 addresses, uh, the secondary IP, uh, you know, it goes up with the instance size. Now the reason I'm talking about this is because this problem we saw as soon as we, um, we got our worker nodes up, the first thing we noticed was all of a sudden, like more than 36 IPs were just consumed. And we didn't know why that was happening. Um, and we initially thought maybe it's some kind of an EKS bug um, that you know, it's consuming so many IPs. It turns out it's a feature. Um, and the feature is that. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Um, and the feature is that it, um, it tries to keep a warm pool of IPs so that if at all a new container comes up on your host, it doesn't take a long time to come up. But since we did not create a new VPC and we had an existing VPC, we were like, if, if, if I go by this rate, it's going to just consume all of my network within a few weeks. And how, how, do, I, how do I handle this? And then. There is a solution. Uh, there's a configuration that you could do where you can say how much, uh, how many IPs you really need. You do not need a 36, let's say. You could just need maybe 10 or 12 uh, or 15. Um, but if you need more, then uh, you just keep the default. Uh, but it cannot go above whatever the max limit is. Uh, so if you configure it as 100, it's not going to work. So let's talk about right configuration. So. Uh, Over-engineered health probes, uh, right? New, new toy in your hand. Um, and then um, we had this incident on, uh, on production where we, we, we got a couple of outages. Uh, and fortunately, those outages were in the night. Um, and we had like a 20 minutes outages in the night. And we didn't know why they were happening all of a sudden. And then we started looking into the source code on, you know, because now we went to this model of developer owns everything. and Developers can, you know, uh, even bring down your production anytime. So, so, <laughs> um, so the, what had happened was one of the um, one of our developers had configured a liveliness probe, and I think his or her intention was really good. What they wanted to do was check whether you know the connectivity to all the ecosystem is is there or not. Go check if you are able to connect to database, connect to Redis, connect to S3, and many more. But what happened was when you when you have such a heavy configuration on your liveliness probe, 
So the, what happened in this specific example was in the nighttime there was a batch job running and your database sometimes tends to become a little bit slow. Uh, there are certain peaks when it just starts becoming a little bit slow and it's no more returning within those millisecond ranges and sometimes it just goes to one second or two seconds sometimes. And the liveliness probe detected that and it said, oh, this, uh, this container is bad, let me just restart. And it started restarting all the containers and then the whole service came down. So what we did was we removed all the heavy logic from the liveliness probe. We just kept it very light. And as far as the readiness probe is concerned, we still had some logic there. So whenever we wanted to roll out any new um, upgrade or whatever, uh, it, that was fine. Let's talk about the small instances uh, versus big instances. Uh, we always, you know, since we were new, uh, we didn't know what configuration was right for us. Um, so let's talk about a small instance. Um, so when you take a small instance, or you take any instance for that matter, um, it comes with all the prerequisites, right? It, it comes with what operating system it has. It comes with the Docker. Uh, and when I say it comes with, I, I specifically mean worker nodes uh, on Kubernetes. And then it has Kubelet, and then uh, and when I say kubelet, I also mean all the other um, uh, other uh, services that Kubernetes needs on the worker node. Um, so I, I didn't put a separate block there. And then you you have all the daemon sets that EKS needs um, uh, or Kubernetes needs in this specific example, kube proxy. Then you have AWS node, the CNI daemon set, and then you have core DNS, right? And then you have the daemon sets that you need to run, you know, for the from metrics logging, etc. So we have Splunk, we have TwistLog for security, and then we have Datadog, right? And then we get some little bit of space to put our containers on top of it, right? Does this does this sound similar? Where this is a pure tax that you're paying on that small instance, whereas the net take home that you have is like so small. What if I, I have a bigger instance? What if I have a bigger instance and then the tax I pay on that bigger instance is still the same, but I get more space on that, right? And, and another advantage of this is a lot of these softwares, um, the vendor softwares, they sometimes charge you <coughs> on a per host basis. So the less number of hosts, the less money you pay on licensing fees and things like that. Okay, let's talk about unstable worker nodes uh, on production. So um, we went ahead uh, with, uh, you know, we just went ahead and uh, in, uh, deployed our worker nodes. Everything was working on the QA environments for the initial few days. And then we started noticing that um, initially when we configured it, everything was in a ready state, everything was working fine, and we did not change any configuration there. Now, slowly as the resource pressure increased on that node, some of these supporting systems like Kubelet, Docker, and the operating systems, they did not have enough resources to run 
Randis. And we started seeing that the node started flipping between ready to not ready, and uh, that was a problem. So uh, it appears that you have to configure a lot of these things uh, uh, before provisioning your worker nodes. You have to reserve space for kubelets. You have to reserve space for system. Um, and otherwise, you'll start getting not ready, and then your worker nodes will start disappearing, or whatever it is. And so after we configured these, um, uh, we were pretty stable on our worker nodes. Let's talk about requests and limits. Um, and since I saw so, saw so many hands go up, I think we all know what requests are, what limits are. But um, I'll, I'll still go ahead and say what that is. Um, so request is what you're guaranteed to get. Limits is for bursting. And when it comes to CPU, it's, it's, if you go above limits, you'll get throttled, right? Um, that's, uh, and then there's more something bad which can happen, I'll talk about later, but, uh, but if you go above the memory, then you get booted out. You, your containers will get killed, and you'll, a new container will be spun off by Kubernetes. So it's extremely important to know what your resource limits are. You cannot configure a request very low, and then, um, uh, uh, think that, you know, since it's going to burst and it's going to be all fine. So let's see what happens. So let's talk about pod, pod eviction. Oh, the R got clipped, I think. Oh, it's showing up there. Okay. So, so let's talk about pod eviction. So let's say some of these um, uh, containers uh, shown in yellow, they are going above their requests, um, but they are still under their limits. And they have different priorities there. So the way the pod eviction works is that it's not going to kill any container based on the priority first. It's going to first filter out which are the containers which go above the request. It's going to start targeting those. So in this case, these two are the containers which go above the request. And then after that, it's going to put the second filter start and start choosing what's their priority. And uh, in this case, uh, the priority uh, 1,000 is, we need that. It's a higher priority. So it, it decides, I'm going to go ahead and kill the lower priority ones. So it, it just killed it. And then um, uh, the, the, the worker node is no more under resource pressure. And then you can spin it off on a separate worker node. Let's talk about um, problem it's a very typical problem we got. Um, we all of a sudden started noticing that our host was uh, not getting enough IPs. Um, you know, uh, containers when they started spinning off, the, you know, the secondary IPs, etc. We, we were not seeing those IPs. And I was like, uh, just yesterday in the call, you said, "Oh, we have this 36 extra IPs for warm pool," and all of a sudden now you. We do not have those IPs. What's happening there? Because we do not have too many containers. And it appears that if your worker node has too many security groups, and number five to be precise, if you have more than five security groups, then uh, the ENIs don't get attached, and it does not get the secondary IP anymore. So um, what we had to do is we had to uh, contact um, AWS support, and then they bumped up the limit, and then we started getting those uh, extra IPs there. So even, so even though we had higher number of security groups. 
Let's talk about service mesh. So as I previously said, we use Istio uh, on our production. Um, and so before I go into the problems, let me talk about the architecture. Um, Istio, as, uh, by the way, how many of you uh, have, uh, have used Istio or know about Istio? Okay, that, that's not, okay. So let me go into this a bit deeper. Um, so uh, Istio essentially leverages Envoy um, uh, for its uh, service mesh, uh, working of the service mesh. And uh, if, I, if somebody asks me, what's Istio? Is it a control plane or is it a data plane? I would say it's both, um, because it's, I would say 75% or 90% of the time it's participating in the data flow. But it has a control, um, uh, it has a control plane um, uh, 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 architecture as well. So, so um, I'm not going to go into what Pilot, Citadel, etc. does, um, but let's talk about um, the data plane part of it. So, each of your pod gets automatically injected via a webhook. And um, the, uh, the Envoy proxy uh, gets injected into your pod. Any traffic that has to go from service A to service B does not go directly. It always goes through an Envoy proxy. So um, that's uh, pretty neat because when you want to do some smart load balancing and things like that, um, that helps out a lot. Um, again, um, any request coming out of, from outside the service mesh uh, has to go through an ingress gateway. Uh, like any other English controller. Um, and then that also has an Envoy part uh, to it. Um, so that also participates in your traffic routing. Um, so one big reason why we chose Istio is a lot of um, uh, inbuilt features in it. Um, of, of course, we, we do not have to go and get another English controller. Uh, it's inbuilt in it, but it's not a, like a typical Kubernetes English controller. It's called a, a English gateway. Um, and then um, it has features like blue-green deployments, um, uh, circuit breakers, um, uh, policies that you can put in, uh, you know, what service can talk to what service and things like that. Okay, let's talk about um, the problem of worker node rolling restart with Istio. Now, since Istio has a component where uh, there is a control plane and the data plane, um, if you're gonna go do a rolling upgrade of your worker nodes, your control plane part of it is also gonna go down. And what happens is, and especially uh, with the EKS environment, we observed that there's a, uh, since there's a webhook there, um, when, the, when the sidecar injector goes down, there is, uh, there's a timeout configured, and because of that, um, it, it cannot deploy any more containers. Um, so what we did was, we separated the, the Istio control plane, um, and then the actual workload that we have. That way we can upgrade our Istio uh, uh, worker, worker nodes uh, separately, and then we can upgrade our actual workload separately. So after that, we did not get any more downtime as far as Istio was concerned. Um, let's go to autoscale. Um, so how many of you are running autoscaler on uh, production? Oh, that's very low, okay. If you're running Kubernetes on production, you, you have to run autoscaler on production. Uh, so that's a bit, doesn't match up. Uh, so, uh, okay, let's talk about autoscaler. So autoscaler, what does it mean? 
It means that if, if I have a container uh, full of, uh, con uh, sorry, a node full of containers, um, and then I, I need to start filling up these uh, nodes with more and more containers, it will as long as there's space in it, right? So in this specific example, it is filling up the uh, node with, uh, with the container here. But now what happens? There's no more space. Uh, there's no more node. So that's where the cluster autoscaler comes into picture. And you have to install it separately. Um, and it, it, it keeps um, you know, monitoring uh, uh, whether we have enough capacity. And then uh, when it's full, it's going to start provisioning a new EC2 instance. Uh, and when I say EC2, I'm purely talking about EKS here. But it can be used in other cloud as well. Um, it's not a cluster autoscaler is not an AWS product. Uh, it is a community product. Um, and it will provision a new worker node. And then your new uh, container can start getting scheduled on it. So that's about cluster autoscaler. Um, um, all you have to do is uh, enable uh, certain labels um, on your uh, worker node group, um, and then install it using a Helm uh, install command. It's as, sim as simple as that. OK, let's talk about um, uh, even though we have uh, cluster autoscaler, why don't services scale very fast? Now, if you, if you see, uh, if you use a cluster autoscaler, it goes through a big process. You know, it has to first go ahead and provision a EC2 instance. It has to bootstrap that node. Then that node has to join the cluster. And then that container has to come up. And then your service gets the opportunity to come up, right? So this whole process takes like five to 10 minutes. Right? It, and if you really want to scale really fast, this is not going to work out. Uh, so you need something really fast so that on need basis you can just go up. So we want to shave off this unwanted time to, to scale up. And, and the actual time to scale should just be when your container should come up or when your application should come up, which is like technically like a minute. Our applications come up less than a minute. So how do we do that? right? Uh, so it appears, so I was in one of the uh, meetups with um, a person from Pinterest, and um, he, he said this is what they use. Uh, and there are multiple approaches again, but uh, what, what they do is they, they have a dummy container, and they, they specify a negative pod priority, and we'll come to what pod priority is, but they specify a negative pod priority on those dummy containers, and those eat up space on your worker node, right? Um, so what happens is, let's say you want to provision or you want to deploy a good container, a really high priority container. It now sees that this yellow container, which has a lower priority, uh, is consuming some space. So since it has a lower priority, it's going to, uh, you know, it will anyways go ahead and kick the new creation of a new worker node since it's an autoscaler. But it will go ahead and take that spot instead of that lower priority. And then our lower priority guy then goes on to the new, newly created worker node. This is one way. Another way is there is something called as um, um, cluster over provisioner. And um, so what this does is that um, it, will, it will not actually deploy, but it will consume that, that much of resource. Um, and then whenever your container wants to um, um, get a space, it will give that space to that container, and it will just come up. So it's worth checking out. Um, 
Okay, so this, this I want to ask everybody who's run Kubernetes in production. So it's a quick trivia. So let's say you have a current replica set um, of two for a container, and you want to move all of a sudden to 25 replica sets, right? You have added a few hosts, and you have a few daemon sets as well. So what do you expect? Will, will the daemon sets and containers all get through, assuming there's enough space? So what appear, it, it appears what happens is there's a problem scaling with daemon sets, right? So if you do not configure it properly, so this is what we saw. Your worker nodes, um, we have some a structure something like this where you have the, um, all the core DNS and all the minimum um, things that you need, which I call the tax, and then you have the containers on top of it. And let's say you all of a sudden want to scale your deployments. Let's say you want to just jump to 25 from two. Um, what happens is you see something like this. What we expected was the daemon sets, it's, it's a daemon set, right? by definition a daemon set has to go on that node, it, it has to get that space, but it appears that it did not get those spaces. Uh, but magically, AWS daemon sets got those spaces, and they were all able to work pretty fine. So we started exploring what's wrong with uh, my daemon sets. And it appears that uh, daemon sets or deployments, uh, they both, if you do not specify any priority, they, they are treated equal. So there's no guarantee that the daemon sets will get provisioned. So we had to go and create priority classes um, and then assign the daemon sets really high priority so that they definitely get deployed all the time. And um, we got our containers a little bit lower priority, so um, if you do not have space on that worker node, it just can go to some other worker node. Okay, so let's move on to pod priority. Um, oh yeah, this we already talked about. Um, um, some reasons why uh, you you would need um, you would need um, auto scaling group uh, per AC. Uh, we did not feel the need, but um, we were exploring this because we have some vendors where they have persistence volume claim, and if you configure um, that, I mean, if, if that that container ends up in a uh, in a different um, uh, AZ, um, then it it's not going to get that data because those have to go onto the same AZ to get reattached. So I won't go too deep into this. Um, uh, again, uh, if, you, if, you, if you go ahead and implement a, um, uh, a node group or availability, um, uh, availability zone, then you have to take care of this situation where uh, any scaling will, you know, uh, there's an imbalance there. Uh, so there's a feature called balance similar node groups, and then it will make sure that your node groups are balanced uh, across the node groups. Your, sorry, your, yeah, your containers are balanced across node groups. Uh, horizontal pod autoscaler, uh, I think everybody knows what this is, uh, but I want to just touch base upon a few things. Uh, we configured the CPU-based uh, HPA, but um, it appears that's not the real way of doing things. Uh, CPU or memory-based, it should be latency-based, or it should be more of uh, 
uh, or requests per minute or things like that. Um, so we are exploring um, the, the Istio-Prometheus uh, uh, combination to get that working. Uh, we're not there yet. Okay, let's talk about security here. Um, so this was pretty critical. Uh, without this, we could not go to production, and this took us a long time to get uh, hardened on our security. So number one was when we did the Hello World. You remember the one hour Hello World? Um, as soon as we rolled out the Hello World, we started seeing a lot of you know, unwel unwelcomed guests trying to get into through our public IPs. And uh, so we, of course, it was a Hello World. We brought it down. Uh, it was all on a POC account. But uh, it was pretty evident that you should not do that. So we do not have any public uh, interface on our worker nodes. Um, we never. Uh, uh, I would, I would not say never, but we, we avoid taking any image from the Docker Hub. As much as possible, we try to build it from the scratch. Uh, they're just purely from a security reason. Uh, all our endpoints of our services, um, they are either protected with security groups or MTLS, so um, no one else can directly go on to those services. Uh, no port forwarding or SSH access to containers, like no developer uh, gets all of these privileges. Um, we do give them uh, kubectl log access, view access, things like that. Um, we go by minimum uh, IAM and RBAC, minimum privilege uh, for IAM and RBAC. Kube um, system is secret, sacred. So what that means is when you install any, anything from open source or any vendor recommended um, software, uh, the first instinct that we followed was not to install it in kube system. Uh, just, it's, it's just dangerous. So we always created a namespace and always installed it in that specific namespace. And lastly, the vulnerability scan. Um, so I'll, I'll be talking about that uh, in this slide here. So we use TwistLock for our vulnerability scan. What that means is that as soon as we our developers um, uh, push a, uh, a code change and it gets built through the CID, CD process. The Docker image is now in the ECR, uh, uh, the ECR repository and it starts getting scanned. Um, and then if there is any vulnerability, we know immediately. So there is a console part of it and there's a CICD part of it. And then, of course, our security teams is behind us to get rid of all the reds. And unless we don't get rid of the reds, we cannot go to production. So this is purely from a from a dev or a POC environment. This is not our production. But just to show you how the tool works, um, it's pretty critical to have such tools uh, when you want to have a daily release or a hourly release. Uh, there should not be any manual intervention there. Another thing is we use uh, Datadog for um, anomaly uh, detection. Uh, so anomaly and uh, um, um, outlier detection. So uh, as many of you know, it, it's one, uh, the outlier just says, uh, has, it, had, has this been uh, consistent with the others? Whereas the anomaly just says, uh, is, it, is it the same it has been behaving uh, in the past? So my observation is whenever we had a problem in production, uh, we definitely uh, the anomaly detection definitely showed us that there was a problem and then um, we, we could go and correlate all of these um, issues here. Okay, so last not but not the least, um, uh, I think if you're new to EKS, there is a uh, dashboard called as EKS Container Roadmap. Very, very super helpful. Um, if you are relying on or you're waiting for some feature, uh, th this is the place to go. And of course, um, 
uh, the Slack channel to ask any questions. This one? Okay. Okay. Okay, thanks. Uh, and then, um, yeah, these are some of the features that we were waiting for from uh, AWS side. Um, so we are running out of time. So we are hiring. So if you're interested, uh, please, uh, please come to our website and apply. Thanks a lot, everyone. Thank you.